0: good stuff praise god his kingdom is advancing we're hearing of people getting saved and darkness is being pushed back amen well let me encourage you a little bit further i want to honor my friend sean from our youth group uh, impact um because he very quietly came up to me at the end of an impact one evening a couple of weeks ago and said i've taken two luke's gospels i'm going to give one to my friend And he did. He went and offered it to his friend. And uh, sadly, he's not very well today, so he's not going to hear it, but hopefully his mum will tell him. Um, And he offered to his friend, and his friend said no. But that's okay, because Sean did exactly what he was meant to do. He was obedient to Christ. He took a gospel, he put it towards the person, and that's all we have to do. And like Pippa said, it doesn't matter if you get rejected. It doesn't matter if they say no thanks. You've done what you were meant to do, and you can uh, praise God that you had that opportunity. So thank you, Sean. Give Sean a round of applause for the recording. Hello, Sean. (laughs) Let me pray, and then we'll get into our series today. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can come and worship you, and I thank you that you are so worthy of worship. You are the one true God. You are the God who can bring people out of darkness into light, no matter what age they are. You're the God who can inspire us to share you with other people, no matter what age we are, God. And I just thank you and praise you for that this morning. And I pray as we look into your word now, as we look at your scripture, you would speak to us through the Holy Spirit, for your glory. Amen. Good. In November 2016, my granddad passed away, and my grandmother followed him about seven months later, in 2017. And uh, there was a mixture of sadness and grief, disappointment, this could get emotional all of a sudden, um, because they wouldn't be at my wedding, I was gutted, I miss them, I miss their hugs and their friendship, (laughs) and the fact that they loved me for about 30 years, and they knew me inside out, and I love that. But they wouldn't be at this really great party. They like to party as well. They, they, they really like it to celebrate with me. And I and I found myself saying, "God, why? Like, why? Why wouldn't? Why? Why wouldn't you keep them with us? Why wouldn't you keep them with us to the big day?" And I even prayed, "God, please, please do that." But He said no. And I suspect you would all in there. I suspect you've all been in that place where you say, if only. If only God would have done that. And that's the place I was in. And I didn't expect, I'd, I rehearsed saying this. I didn't cry at all. And all of a sudden, there I am, realizing how much I miss them. But I imagine you've been there. You've been there and you say, oh, if only God. If only God had got me that job. If only God had helped me. If only God... It brought me a spouse, if only God had healed my friend. Thanks, Christian, so kind. Um, and uh, if, you say, if you've ever said that, then you actually have something in common with who we're going to read about today. And uh, the reality is we all face these circumstances where you are disappointed with God, as impossible as that might seem, um, as strange as that might seem. But when your expectations go unmet, you can get disappointed. And Mary and Martha, who are two people we're going to read about in a moment, actually go through that same process. And in the passage we are going to read from John chapter 11, Jesus uh, does some really great stuff, but he holds them in tension. And he challenges us to trust him with his timing and with his words and with his actions. And so if you open your notes, we're going to read about this encounter. about, about Jesus. And I need to give you the context before we, we do that. Um, otherwise, we would have been reading for about five minutes, which everyone, I wouldn't expect anyone to go with me through a whole scripture for five minutes, uh, unless you're super, super keen. So the context for this is that Jesus is coming towards the end of his ministry, and he's traveled to a place called Bethany, and then he's gone further outside of Jerusalem across to a place called Perea. There might be a map that shows up just in case you want to geek out like I do over geography. And uh, he's gone to this place, which is beyond Bethany, and he gets a message from a family that he loves in Bethany um, that says the one that he loves is ill. And it's Lazarus, that's his name, Mary and Martha's brother. And this message that he receives is not a question, it's a statement that just says he's ill. And Jesus replies, it's not going to end in death. He doesn't say, Don't worry. He just says, It's not going to end in death. It's going to end in God's glory and glorify me. And he stays two days longer where he was in Perea and before, and before he returns to Bethany. And his disciples who are with him are confused about two things. They seem to be confused that he would want to go back towards Jerusalem right now when some religious leaders who hated him wanted to stone him just recently. And they seem to also be confused that he wants to go and wake up someone who is sleeping. That seems like something that is strange. So Jesus then has to explain, Lazarus has died, we're going to go him back, and we're going to wake him up. And uh, this is where we pick up the story when Jesus arrives back in Bethany. Um, And it's verse 17 of John chapter 11, and I'm going to read it to you, and I won't do the voices, I will just be sensible, uh, and we'll read it together. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. "'Where have you laid him?' he asked. "'Come and see, Lord,' they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, "'See how he loved him!' But some of the others said, "'Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying?' Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance." Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, I did not tell you that if you believe, uh, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Amen. So, the remarkable story of Lazarus raised from the dead, it comes just before Jesus heads into Jerusalem for the very last time. And it's a miracle that points to the main event of the Gospels, if you read them, which is Jesus' crucifixion, death, resurrection, and it all takes place a short time later. And this particular encounter within the encounter series, um, many people believe and understand that it teaches us to trust Jesus. And it extends the, uh, the opportunity to trust Jesus to those who don't believe in him as well. And I just want to highlight three things this morning that I believe Jesus wants us to trust him with. And the reality is, you could take this passage and do an entire series on it. Um, so forgive me if I miss out your favorite bit. Um, but here are the three things that I think uh, we need to focus on this morning together. Jesus wants to trust us with his timing, with his words, and with his actions. So trusting Jesus is not always easy. And in the passage, the disciples struggle. If you read the earlier part, this well-known figure of Lazarus from Bethany has died. And this message that comes, this statement, Lord, he whom you love is ill, gets to the disciples and to Jesus. And Jesus boldly gives away the ending by saying, don't worry, or he doesn't say don't worry. He says, this won't end in death. This will end in God's glory. And he delays two more days before going to Bethany the opposite of what the people sending the message would have expected to happen. And it says in the, the part before that Jesus loved this family. And when reading it, I, I immediately thought, how, how could possibly Jesus love this family by delaying longer, by not going back to heal the man? And of course, Jesus gives it away in the scripture, and we have the opportunity of looking back and kind of going, oh, ha ha, how silly they are to, to not have trusted him in the first place. But in the moment, as you can imagine, when you're mourning, when you're when you're desperate for someone to come and save the situation and they say no, well, actually, that that can leave you a bit shocked, a bit like, oh, oh, dear. And this is what can happen to us as Christians if our prayer doesn't get answered. And you've probably been there. You've probably fallen into the trap, which is uh, reflecting on something Jesus didn't say yes to, perhaps, and going, well, if he really loved me, he would. And I do it all the time, and I fall into that trap of thinking I'm not loved just because Jesus doesn't answer my prayer in the moment. And the reality is they have to learn this. When they learn that Jesus is staying longer, uh, they have to learn to trust him in the moment. They have to trust him even when their schedule doesn't match up with his. And uh, sometimes I like to imagine what the characters, the people in the story might be thinking when, when things like this happen. And I can just imagine Lazarus like, you know, literally dying, going, what? He's not coming back? Not for another two days? Like, what's he playing at? Why isn't he coming to heal me? Who knows? But um, this is a challenge that we face. Every time our prayer doesn't get answered. And even though it's a challenge, I do believe that it is a baby step towards faith or maturity in faith. As we began to read the passage, Jesus arrived in Bethany outside the town, and Martha gets to him first. And we're just going to look at the the two encounters, really, Martha and Jesus, and Mary and Jesus, and and then the end of the story. But when Martha gets to Jesus, he's still outside. She must have come running out, perhaps, and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, Martha's faith is displayed immediately in the verse. She believes that Jesus would have healed her brother if he'd been there. But then she makes another faithful statement. She says, but even now, I believe God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Martha is referring to an Old Testament sort of promise that that talks about judgment in the last day and everybody being raised together and resurrected, but seems to have missed the fact that what she just said kind of doesn't match up with what uh, is about to happen. She seems to have missed the fact that Jesus' scheduling doesn't match up with hers because Jesus is there and he's there to surprise her. He's there to say, no, I'm going to do it today. <laughs> but he doesn't say that. And you might also have experienced that in your lifetime, that disappointment when Jesus doesn't answer your prayer for healing, for example. And it, it is, this is what puts a lot of people off going for it, uh, praying for healing. It is the, what if he doesn't do it? And I've been there, uh, maybe you've been there, where you pray for someone and they report no immediate effects of wellness. Um, and, and you kind of have to, you, you do this really great like Western British thing where you just go, mm-hmm. okay, can we pray again? And then they go, no. And you go, oh, okay then. And you kind of give up and you have to kind of fight off the disappointment that it didn't Because you know Jesus can do it, but he didn't do it. And so how do you, you trust him. You have to trust him. You have to, you're faced again with that little bit of step of faith, which takes you to go, I trust him anyway. I trust him to, to do it, you know, at the right time. And it's really hard, I guess, for Martha in this situation, because she obviously trusts Jesus, but incorrectly points to a future resurrection, doesn't expect Jesus to do an immediate one. Um, as he will do in a few moments. And although we find it difficult to comprehend when Jesus doesn't run to our schedule, it does actually present that opportunity to put our trust in him at a later date. And I know it's hard, and I I wouldn't try and give you a a blanket answer as to what to do in that moment, but I always find if I pray for someone and they don't get healed, I, I do reassure them that God does love them. Because sometimes people can get disappointed even though you've tried to do something that is genuinely of the kingdom. And, and I find that actually, you no know, going, I know you didn't get healed, but God does still love you is a really helpful way to uh, conclude that uh, moment. And uh, it often, yeah, it often kind of can get a bit awkward if you don't really have any kind of response at the end. So I'd encourage you to do that if it ever happens to you. But Jesus knows it'll hurt his friends when he delays going back to Bethany. But he ultimately knows that it will further develop their faith in who he is and what he's come to achieve. So that's the first thing I think he wants us to trust him, trust him with is timing. The next thing he wants us to trust him with is his words. Now, if you're a Christian here, I want to ask you whether you've ever been in that infuriating situation where you, you get someone comes and prays for you and they quote Jesus. And it's not because they've done it out of context or because they've mispronounced a word or just because they happen to know the Bible reference as well that it's infuriating. But it can be infuriating, infuriating because it challenges you to trust Jesus' words and it challenges you to, to, be, to put your faith in his truth. And that's why it's infuriating sometimes because when someone comes and prays to you with such a simple thing that Jesus says, you know it's true and you know you are to trust it but it's hard in that moment because you're caught up in the emotion of whatever you've come to be prayed for about. And it actually, it, it's sometimes difficult to trust the words of Jesus, even when someone does it in really good faith and you know that they love you and you know that they're right. That's probably the thing that's most annoying uh, is they, they, are, they are right because they are quoting Jesus. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but across the, the Gospels, Jesus's disciples are often bewildered by the things he says, by his words. He, he makes claims and statements that appear to be beyond his station. And they're looking at a man thinking, how can you say that? And Jesus makes five absolute I am statements. And he makes seven metaphorical I am statements which point us to his deity. But in response to Martha's, and in response to Martha's statement about the resurrection on the last day, Jesus makes a very important I am statement. He says... I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I don't know if you can get your head around what he's saying. Um, I I couldn't to start with, so I I break the sentence down. But what Jesus is saying is outrageous. (laughs) What he utters can't be compared to any prophet, president, apostle, or politician. It can't be compared to anyone ever. Because no one makes this claim, no one makes this claim, unless they are entirely certain of their identity as God. So the first part says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is declaring that he has dominion over physical, spiritual, and eternal life. Only God alone could claim that, and no one else has. The next part of the statement says, the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. The promise of life after physical death rests in the name of Jesus. For the believer, physical death is not the end of the story. And the last part of the statement says this, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. The gift of eternal life belongs to those who believe in Jesus. Like the person Pippa mentioned, like the RE teacher, like lots and lots of us here today. And eternity awaits us with Jesus. And next week, we get to see this in action. As Alex gets baptized, it's a symbolic act of faith that epitomizes this statement. Alex will go down into the water, having proclaimed Jesus, and he goes down into death, as it were, and then he's covered by that and then he will come back out again into life. He is resurrected. And it's Jesus who enables this to happen. And it's a powerful moment. And uh, I'm really glad Kevin took uh, just a moment to let that settle. The importance of, of being baptized and, and acknowledging Jesus publicly, but then, then doing this, like doing what Jesus stated uh, he, he embodied. Going down into the water and coming back up again. So I encourage you, if you haven't been baptized... Uh, wait on God, seek God and do it. Jesus' words here uh, give us hope as Christians and the same words should impart hope to anyone who's not a Christian. So anyone who's not a Christian with us this morning, um, I just want to extend hope to you that you can put your faith in Jesus as well, just like the teacher I mentioned earlier on. Uh, It should give you hope that he says this. It shouldn't just be a, a bland statement that that, uh, washes over you. Because trust in Jesus' words give us more than just a fuzzy feeling. They should propel us to declare the hope over a hopeless situation like that which Mary and Martha faced in this encounter. And I decided to conclude this point with a powerful statement because Jesus' powerful statement deserves a powerful summary, I believe. And J.C. Ryle, um, commentator, theologian, has helped me out with this. So I'm going to read it Uh, emphatically what he what he said to summarize this statement he says he tells her that he is not merely a human teacher of the resurrection but the divine author of all resurrection whether spiritual or physical and the root and fountain of all life i am high and holy one who by taking man's nature upon me has enabled ennobled his body and made its resurrection possible I am the great first cause and procurer of man's resurrection, the conqueror of death, the savior of the body. I am the great spring and source of all life. And whatever life anyone has, eternal, spiritual, physical, is all owing to me. All that are raised from the grave will be raised by me. All that are spiritually quickened are quickened by me. Separate from me, there is no life at all. Death came by Adam. Life comes by me. That's the point Jesus is making. Thanks, J.C. Ryle, for the summary. You see, he's not telling Martha what Martha needs to hear in this moment of grief. He's declaring a truth that set millions of people free, enabled them to have eternal life. Jesus' concluding uh, a uh, question on this statement, just typifies the whole thing, and it's really what we're about uh, as Christians. We're, it's really the question we're meant to ask people is the same question he asked at the end of saying all that. He says, "Do." you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So let me ask you today, if you're Christian or not a Christian, do you believe this? Do you believe he is who he claims to be? Martha supersedes Peter's confession by declaring that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, Savior, of Israel, the Son of God, the one who is going to redeem the world. She just kind of gets does what you sometimes do as a Christian, perhaps in prayer, where you just use every name for God that you can remember. You're like, you're you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, and you're the Redeemer. You're, You're everyone, and you kind of babble them out. It seems that she doesn't know quite what to say in the moment. But Jesus lays down the gauntlet for us to trust his words, and then he goes on, to ask us to trust his actions. So that's the second one. Trust words, trusting the actions is the last one. So in this encounter, Jesus' deity and humanity are, are fully revealed. His response to Martha consists of a statement and a proclamation, but his response to Mary is entirely different. Verses 32 to 33 in your notes, I'll read them again to you. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. So here we read of Mary running out to Jesus, falling down at his feet. She, she's not really like Martha at all. Martha seemingly stood and spoke with Jesus, but Mary, overwhelmed with grief, falls at his feet and repeats the same statement. She says, if only, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she doesn't follow it up with anything. She doesn't follow it up with a faithful statement or anything, but we get the, the Jesus reaction then. Jesus has seen Mary and those around her weeping, and he sympathizes with her. He too begins to weep. And yet, Jesus knows why they're weeping And he also knows that in moments later, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and reunite him with his sisters. Yet he weeps. Why? But you and me, you're thinking, well, if you know what's going to happen, you don't get upset about it, right? You know the end of the story and you don't, you don't, you go, oh, oh, you're all weeping. Don't worry, guys. And just walk off. No, Jesus is so much more human than that in this moment. He models perfect love. He meets with the mourners where they're at and then he joins in. And these are powerful human moments and I mean, I got upset at the start and some of you got upset with me. Thanks, thanks for that. You're more like Jesus than you think because that's exactly what he did. And I wanted to encourage you again this morning about our youth group impact because when my granddad died, I told them and they, they saw me before I saw you, perhaps on the Sunday and I told them about it and I said, could you pray for me? And uh, I knelt down in the, in the center, and then one by one, hands got put on my shoulders, and they just wet with me. They started to cry. Some, I don't think anyone prayed, but we just, we just snotty cried, all of us. We just snotty cried all together. And it was just the best, the best, best example I could give you of young people who love me, which I'm so grateful for. But also, love Jesus and are most like Him in those moments because they didn't say anything. They didn't try and make it better. They didn't, they didn't try and fix it like I would have done as an adult. They just, they just prayed and they just saw someone they loved going through mourning and they, they prayed for me and cried with me, and I love that. And so, yeah, it's not really appropriate to clap them right now, particularly when a grown man is crying. But the, the, point, the point being, I would applaud them, and I do applaud them, and I love them for it. But it just reminded me of this moment where Jesus is so moved. He so loves the people that are mourning that he cries with them, and there's none of this stiff upper lip rubbish. There's none of this, we're British, we can get through this if we just, just do what we want to do. There's none of that. It's, it's open, it's vulnerable, it's raw. It's Jesus. And it's a deeply moving moment, and other people have commentated on this verse, and, and they say, they talk about how Jesus is so moved, and, and the, the translations from the old languages are, are descriptive, and they, they say that actually, although it says he's deeply moved, it doesn't quite encapsulate it. I mean, Timothy Keller says that he literally roars and moans with anger and de- at the devastation of death, and... He roars and moans up to them and cries with them, and then he roars and moans up to the cave and, and calls out Lazarus a moment later. And I don't know about you, nowadays, when someone does pass away, I get angry. And um, God, God bless my wife, Sophie, because really none of this came out until the wedding was done. And I was on honeymoon night going, ah, I missed them, and the least romantic thing you could possibly imagine. But uh, she was there for me in that moment. And it was because I hadn't processed it, and I, I just sometimes I get a bit concerned that actually we don't process this stuff. We don't. We're not able to be genuine enough. And it was interesting just hearing what uh, Pip had said about being lonely, and you know we have a loneliness minister. What? Like why? We shouldn't need one of those, but we have one, and but I worry that even coming together in community, we can miss the point. We can. We can. We can get to a certain level of genuineness, and then we can stop. Actually, we'll come to the application in a minute, but I do believe we're being called into something of a more uh, fundamentally genuine position among each other. But anyway, I digress. I identify with Jesus when he gets angry at death now. I'm less upset and more angry that death would do such a thing and take someone I love away, and I wonder whether that's something that you might share with me. But we must continue the story, because in the next moment, mourning turns to joy. As Jesus stands before the tomb, having roared and weeped, and he calls out Lazarus from the tomb, and like, it says his hands and feet are bound. I just imagine him doing this. <laughs> how does he get out of the thing? And he can't see, so he probably like, lands runs into a bush or something. I don't know. Just See how joy and sorrow are so close together? When you read this, it's... it says, I'm binding them, to let him go. And off he goes. We don't hear anything else about the story after that, but then we do hear this. We do hear about the fact that um, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus had done. Some believe, but others run off to the Pharisees and uh, and tell them what happened. And it turns out that Jesus' final miracle, his final action, final major miracle in this event, leads to his trial, his crucifixion, and his death. And by... Ending the, the funeral of Lazarus, he basically starts his own one. By calling a man out of the grave, he's, he's basically saying, right, I'm going in. You're coming out, and, he, and Jesus is going in, in the, in the next set of passages. And it's, it's a powerful picture of the gospel that we get to see here. And, and we've heard about it lots of times before, and you'll see it in your notes, that actually the kingdom of God is nothing like this. Kingdom. In the kingdom of God, death turns into resurrection. Weakness becomes strength. Repentance leads to power. Generosity is true wealth. And then mourning turns to dancing. And this is exactly what we see at the end of this story and then later in the end of Jesus' kind of earthly story when he's um, crucified and then resurrected. It triggers his funeral. And the next time he weeps is in the garden of Gethsemane. But in summary, Jesus wants us to trust him. He doesn't want us to remain uninformed about his deity or his perfection or his power over life and death, but rather he'd have us put our trust in him. And in return for that trust, he doesn't offer us like a consolation prize. He offers us real life, eternity with him. And so how do we do that? How do we do real life with Jesus? Well, you'll see in your application, and very quickly I'm going to summarize it for you essentially we've got two life groups left before the end of the year and I want you to go to life group and share your if only statement and it can be a statement you've shared before but possibly it'll be something that Holy Spirit draws to your attention that you haven't actually shared that it's still harnessed up in your heart somewhere that is is painful and actually draws you to tears and you need to you need to process that and be genuine and be vulnerable with that and Life group is the right context for that. It is a family context. It is a place where actually you can cry and you can snotty cry if that's your thing. Uh, And that's okay. It led me to imagine this. If we did that every week for a year, perhaps we'd become a, a church that is genuinely built on weeping, snotty crying, but firm relationships at the root of all that that aren't afraid to be vulnerable, aren't afraid to be like Jesus. And he was the most mature person there ever was, and yet he wept and mourned. He was genuine, he was vulnerable. And then I imagined that if we remember to remind each other that we are not to grieve without hope, how that would change us from week to week. And then I imagined that if we became the most genuine people our friends, relatives, and colleagues knew, then we could testify to to the fact that even in the face of death, We trust in Jesus, and we still have hope. Now, I trust Jesus, and I trust him with my grandparents too, and I mourn with hope. And I celebrate the fact that even though uh, they didn't make it along to my wedding, they were actually invited to a much better party before that day. And things weren't going to kick off at my wedding like they were in heaven. But that's where they are. And every time someone puts their trust in Jesus, they just set to do that party all over again. And I love that. So let me encourage you. I'm going to finish and hand back to Kevin. But trust Jesus. Trust his timing. Trust his words. And trust his actions. Amen.